It's great to be here with you, and uh, we uh, are in a new series called The Covenant Affirmations, and uh, it's basically six weeks on sort of the shared faith that we have with roughly 800 churches in North America and around the world. We are a part of a denomination called the Evangelical Covenant, and these are the sort of six major affirmations that we uphold together. Now, all of our churches in the covenant are unique and diverse. They, all, they don't look like Cornerstone. They don't act like Cornerstone. They meet in different kinds of cities and areas, and the demographics are very uh, wide-ranging. <clears throat> Excuse me. But these six affirmations we hold to together as one church under Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the affirmation of the necessity of the new birth, how we must be born again. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says, how am I born again? And Jesus says, only through the Spirit. And Jesus says, you don't need more teaching. You don't need more theology. You don't need more doctrine. What you need is me. What you need is to be transformed. You are now a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And so the new birth is a necessity of our lives. Today's affirmation is the centrality of the Word of God the centrality of the Word of God. That speaks for itself. And so let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. We're going to read seven verses, and then we're going to talk about the centrality of the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Paul writes, <coughs> excuse me. Paul writes in verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them, all, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who, sh- all who desire to live a godly life and Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the word of God. Can we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Lord, this morning we come to you and we ask for your spirit to breathe out again in our presence, in our midst, your words, your truth, your revelation to all of us. Father, we are in need of teaching. We are in need of rebuke. We are in need of correction. And Lord, we are in need of equipping and training to serve you faithfully with faith in this world. Father, we need you. And therefore, we need your word. So speak to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the 1600s, a German theologian by the name of Philip Jakob Spener wrote this to the church. 
thought should be given to a more extensive use of the word of God among us. He's calling the church back to the word. He says, we know that by nature we have no good in us. If there is to be any good in us, it must be brought about by God. To this end, the word of God is the powerful means since faith must be enkindled through the gospel. The more at home the word of God is among us, the more we shall bring about faith in its fruit. The more at home the word of God is among us, the more we shall bring about faith in its fruits. Philip Jacob Spanner is calling the church out and saying, Scripture must occupy the central place and space in your organization, in your gathering, in your doing, but also in your personal lives. See, for Spanner, the Word of God was not just a list of do's and don'ts. It wasn't just history. It wasn't just doctrine. It wasn't just ritual as it is for many of us. For Spanner, the Word of God was the most powerful and the most effective change agent available to us. It could change a person, a human, a soul. It could change a church. It could change a community. It could change a nation. It could change the world. And he believed it. And he said, the more at home the word of God is among us, the more we shall bring about faith and its fruits. I want to talk about the Bible today. I know we talk about the Bible every Sunday, but today I want to talk about the centrality of the Word of God, the Word of God. Some of us call the Word of God the Bible, which means, is, the Bible literally means book. Some of us call the Word of God Scripture or Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, which literally means writings. The book, the writings, the Word of God, all interchangeable this morning, okay? The Bible was written, it has 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Those books were written over a span of 1,500 years by roughly 40 different authors. The Bible was written in two primary languages, Hebrew and Greek. There's a little bit of Aramaic involved as well. The Bible is the most powerful book and also the best-selling book of all times. Believe it or not, it beats Harry Potter and Hunger Games combined by a long shot. The central theme, the central protagonist, the central character of the Bible is Jesus Christ, who is also the most powerful and influential historical figure who has ever walked the face of this earth. There are more books written about Jesus than any other man or person that ever lived. I, and I'm a pastor, I'm a Bible geek, I think I have, just in my own small little library, over 150 books about Jesus Christ. And I've got a small library. Okay, but I'm a pastor, so that's like, you know, that's what we have at our house. Those are our decorations. Right? We don't have vases. We don't have pictures. We have books. Okay, but I kind of tucked mine away because I wanted our house to look more presentable. Anyway, there are a lot of books written about Jesus, and there are a lot of books written about his life. In fact, I think every book, every novel, every story, every movie, in some way, shape, or form, is about Jesus. Harry Potter is about Jesus. Katniss Everdeen is about Jesus. Darth Vader is about Jesus. See, a lot of people think the Star Wars, this is a little tangent, Star Wars is about Luke Skywalker and Yoda. No, Star Wars, which is actually six films, is a story about Anakin Skywalker who becomes Darth Vader, who brings force, who brings balance to the force. 
He's the only one who appears in all six of those movies. Jesus also appears in all 66 books of the Bible. He is central to every word, to every writing, to every letter, to every prophet, to every sermon that we have collected in the scriptures. It wasn't until 1200 that the scriptures were given chapter numbers. See, you and I, we have John 3, 16. We have 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17. It wasn't until 1600 that verses were also included so that in the chapter you could find a specific verse. Before that, the Bible was actually written on these large scrolls and was read like a novel. It just flowed. It read like a long novel. You didn't end at the end of the chapter and then discuss it. No, you just kept going and going. And there were different scrolls. We didn't have it in one bound edition. You had the scroll of Isaiah. You had the scroll of the Gospel of John. You had multiple scrolls for the Psalms. It was preserved in scrolls. Now, in 300 AD, a man by the name of Jerome translated the Bible from Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic into Latin. His translation is known as the Vulgate. The reason why he translated it into Latin was because Latin was the common spoken language of the time. A thousand years later, in 1300 AD, a man by the name of John Wycliffe translated the Bible from Latin to English because the English vernacular was the common spoken language of the time. In 1460, a man by the name of Johannes Gutenberg created this device, this machine, using movable type. He called it the printing press, and he devised this machine solely to print and publish mass copies of the Bible so that everyone could have it. In fact, if you go out into the lobby today on your way out, on the right side by the steps, there is, I believe, an original printing press. This is the Ben Franklin Institute of Technology, by the way. It is an original printing press. Gutenberg developed this machine. He invented it exclusively to print the Bible so that every person could have a copy. You'd think that if somebody invented the printing press, which would lead to the printing of all literature, he'd make a fortune. Well, he would have made a fortune today, but in his time, he died penniless. See, at that time, before Gutenberg invented the printing press, if you wanted a copy of the Bible, the average man would have to spend his entire life savings to get his own copy. It would cost a week's wages to borrow or to read a scripture for an hour. If you wanted to copy the scripture word by word so that you could have your own copy, it would take you about 10 months to write it word for word. And that's if you're an average writer. So what Gutenberg did, what Wycliffe did, what Jerome did, and I'm missing a lot of people in between, are pretty significant. Because of their work, we now have, I have in my pocket, an iPhone, which on it has a Bible. It has two Bibles on it, actually. And I got it for free from the App Store. I didn't have to spend a, a week's wages, a, a lifetime savings. See, before Gutenberg, if you wanted to interact with scriptures, you had to go to Mass. You had to hear from the Pope. And the Pope preached and read the Bible and sang their songs in Latin. If you go to High Mass today, it's still in Latin, not in English. So we have the Bible as accessible to us. 
However, even after Gutenberg created this invention so that other people could have their own copy of the Bible, it wasn't as if you could just read it freely and do what it said. There was an incredible amount of persecution to read the scriptures, to interpret it, to apply it, and to live it out, namely by the church. The Roman Catholic Church believed that the Pope was the only authoritative interpreter of scriptures. Everybody else has fallen. You're all sinful. And so if you were to read the Bible yourself, then you would probably mess it up, you would probably misinterpret it, and you would probably create heresy, which is a very real possibility. But so that that wouldn't happen, the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope decided we will be the key holders to the interpretation of Scripture. And therefore, there were people who were persecuted for creating their own church or their own denomination or their own way of living out and practicing the faith that that was formed in their lives through the Bible. So, in 1640, a group of people got together. They set sail across the Atlantic Ocean seeking a new place to live that would give to them religious freedom. They came to North America. They established a colony here at at Plymouth, and they started a new country, a new nation, solely so that they could worship freely without the oppression of the Roman Catholic Church, the state church at that time. Soon after, there was the proliferation of education. They wanted everybody to be able to read the Bible, so they started schools. They started colleges. The first 100 colleges established in North America were to teach people how to read the Bible. Not Homer, but the Bible. Even most of the original Ivy League colleges were seminaries. They were sending institutions where people would come in, young men would come in, they'd be trained in the Bible, and then they'd be sent out into the world to preach it. That's right, including Harvard. We've come a long way. A lot of people have shed blood. A lot of people have done a lot of hard work so that you and me could just turn on our phone, go to the app store and download it for free, go down to the bookstore, buy a copy. I've got like 25 copies of the Bible at my house. A lot of people put a lot of time, a lot of effort, they spill a lot of blood to give us what we now today take for granted as the Bible or the Word of God or Scripture. Is it central? I bet you if you asked any one of these people who came before us to give it to us, whether they were one of the pilgrims and they left their homes and they died at sea, they lost family members at sea, whether it was Gutenberg who created a device that he was persecuted for creating, or Wycliffe who was burned alive because he was translating the holy scriptures into the bourgeois language of the day, or Jerome who spent his entire life in academia so that he could take Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic and give it to us in Latin. But these were just people who translated it. They were messengers. They were people who brought it from back then to today. I mean, the Bible has so much influence on us, right? I mean, even our calendar system is based on the events of the Bible, the way that we date uh, the calendar. Today is 2012 AD, and then you have BC. BC stands for what? It doesn't stand for Boston College. It stands for before Christ. And A.D. does not stand for after death of Christ, as some of you may think. It stands for Anno Domini, which is the Latin word for in the year of the Lord. 
So even the way we live and the way that we look at the clocks and our calendar system and everything is based on the facts and the figures and the person and the implications of the person, Jesus Christ. See, I've just been talking about the Bible for the last 10 minutes, and I wonder, is it central to us? Thought should be given to a more extensive use of the Word of God among us. This was written in 1675, and I think it rings true today. Thought should be given today, April 22nd, 2012, to a more extensive use of the Word of God among us. The more at home the Word of God in us, the more, shall, the more we shall bring about faith in its fruits. Not to mention the one who actually wrote the scripture that we read just now in 2 Timothy 3. His name was Paul. Paul was a religious zealot who went around persecuting, arresting, and executing Christians. One day, he, was in, he encountered the risen Lord, and he was converted instantly into a Christ follower and spent the rest of his life being persecuted, being arrested, and eventually executed for doing what? For preaching the very gospel he tried to destroy. Paul traveled over 5,000 miles before there were planes, trains, and automobiles to different cities and different countries to proclaim the word of God. And over that span of roughly 5,000 miles, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was robbed, he was stabbed, he was stoned, he was arrested, he was persecuted. And he was inspired by God to write of the 27 New Testament books, 13 of them, half. Paul, is rep- Paul represents half. Not literally in words, but let's just say in books. Paul wrote half the New Testament. And 2 Timothy as far as we can tell, is the last letter that he wrote before he died. Paul is writing this to his younger brother in the faith, Timothy, one of his disciples. Timothy was raised by a Christian mom and a Christian grandmother. And since he was a youth, since he was a child, they had instilled in him the word of God. And so in this very poignant letter that Paul writes to Timothy, Paul is reflecting on where he's been and what he's done. He talks about the different cities that he was persecuted and arrested in. And now as he looks back on life, awaiting his death, not death sentence because it's already been cast, the verdict's already been told, you're going to die. He's waiting his death. He writes this letter to Timothy. And he asks Timothy, well, he asked Timothy to do a few practical things. He says, bring me some things I need because Paul was in prison. He wasn't in prison like we see on TV where they had a prison library and a prison weightlifting room and a prison basketball court and a prison cafeteria. The kind of prison that Paul was in was a 20-foot pit dug into the ground with a cage on top. There was no bed. There was no heat. Imagine how wet, dark, and damp and cold it got in the middle of the night in 20 feet of earth. Every once in a while, they'd throw down a couple guards down there, not to keep them company, but to chain him at both arms because they were that afraid that he was going to somehow miraculously escape because he had done so before. So Paul is in this place, in this jail cell, awaiting his decapitation 
and he reflects on his life, and his purpose to write Timothy is this. Timothy, stay the course. If you follow me because I followed Christ, your life will be hard. You will face persecution. But God will deliver the righteous. So Paul is encouraging Timothy to stay the course. But how? How do you stay the course? When you're going to get rocks thrown at you, when people are going to literally try to mob you and lynch you, imprison you and kill you, how do you stay the course? Well, Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The NIV adds a word, so, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul tells Timothy to stay the course despite all the mess you're going to have to go through. And he says, the scriptures, the word of God is going to be everything you need and all that you need to do everything you need to do in the name of Jesus. You don't need to add anything to it and there isn't anything missing from it. All of it is inspired by, it's literally spoken out of God's breath. That's a literal translation, is breathed out by God. Some translations say inspired by God. That's a, that's a translation. The literal translation, literally word for word, is one word. It's a compound word, which means God's breath. All scripture is God's breath, and it is profitable. It's valuable. It's useful to teach, to rebuke, or to reproof to correct, and to train for every good deed. Paul tells Timothy to stay the course, and he says, all you need is to make the Bible central to your life. Thought should be given. We should consider as a church, like Spainer said in 1675, for a more extensive use of the Word of God in our life, and in our church. This is the centrality of the Word of God. This is what Paul, in his famous last words, this is what he's writing. He's got nothing left, no time. He's got no cities to go to, no people to meet. He's now just encouraging. And, you know, you, you can't tell. That's the incredible thing about his writing. If you study all of Paul's literature, his writing, It's hard to tell unless he's explicit where he's writing from. And a lot of the times he's writing in that 20-foot hole. Not in the same one. He's been in multiple holes. He's not down on himself. He's not dragging his feet like, oh, you know, look what I got myself into. No. He's pointing everybody he writes to, to Christ. And the book or the writings that point us to Christ are the scriptures, the Bible. We need to return to a more extensive use of the word of God. And Paul gives us four ways to do that. He says it's profitable to teach. We can't know anything with God 
about God, anything at all apart from the revelation of His Word. Jesus said, I am the Word. I am the Word. And so Jesus is the Word become flesh. The Bible become flesh. We can't know Jesus, we can't know God well, specifically, apart from the Scriptures. We can know God generally, we can know Jesus generally, but apart from the Bible, we can't. So we must teach. We must, therefore, study. The only way you can know God is to study God's Word. But then it's also useful for what? For reproof. Another word is rebuke. The Bible is also important because not only does it tell us about God, it tells us about us. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It tells us that we, there is no good in us. That that good that comes from us must come from God. And that from what? From the reading of Scripture, from the revelation of God's Word. So if you think you're perfect, if you think you're flawless, if you think you've reached a place in life where there's no turning back because you've hit that sweet spot and you're in sinless perfection, read the Bible because it will reproof you or it will rebuke you and it will remind you that we have all fallen short of God's glory. And then it's profitable for correction. Isn't that good news? Isn't that, see, some of us, we're like, that's bad news, but no, that's good news. Because if the Bible tells us who we are, that we're sinners, correction tells us how we can be right with God. How we can live a life pleasing with God. How we can make right relationship. We can turn a wrong relationship, a wrong status, a bad status, a guilty status, into a salvation status with God. Correction. It puts us in right relationship with God. And sometimes, you know, yeah, the truth is, correction is hard to take. But hopefully if it's constructive and it's loving and it's good, it makes us better. Whether it comes from a friend or a family member or a mentor or a professor or a boss. But especially in the Word of God. That is, that God speaks into our life and it tells us things that we don't want to hear. It's not to make us miserable so that we live boring, mundane lives. But it's so that we can value and treasure the only life we were created to live. The abundant life that Jesus came to give the life to the full, the life to the max. We only are able to attain that and experience that and witness that when we are in the Word of God. So it teaches, it it reproves, it corrects, and it trains. It equips us. It gives us everything we need. There is no lacking. And there there isn't anything in addition we need to add We have every single thing we need to carry out every single good work that God would have for us in the Word of God. This is what Paul tells Timothy. And thanks to Jerome and Wycliffe and Gutenberg and on and on and so many people that I've missed in between, we can read this letter too. And we can be reminded that all Scripture, not just the Gospels, not just Revelation, not just Daniel, Ezekiel, or Isaiah, but Genesis, Numbers, Leviticus, Judges, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, all of it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training for all righteousness. That's all we need, guys. That's all we need, folks.
It's all we need, friends. So let me give us four ways we can consider a more extensive use of the Word of God in our lives. Four ways, really quick. The first one, and you know what? I want to tell you this. You already know these, okay? So they're not mysterious. You don't have to write them down because you already know them, okay? Especially if you've heard my preaching for a while. The first one is this. Read it, okay? There's no mystery. There's no magic. There's no secret, all right? It's not create your own adventure. No, just read it straight through, okay? There's nothing hiding behind door number one. Read the Bible. And you guys have heard me say this too. I'm not talking about like hours and hours a day like, like monks do in monasteries. I'm saying like, and again, some of you disagree with me, and please just feel free to disagree if you think I'm wrong here, but I'm saying at least to 15 minutes a day. Some people are like, 15, that's not enough. <laughs> well, if that's not enough for you, read more. I'm not holding you back. <laughs> Don't tell me. I'm busy. I got stuff to do. I mean, I read more than 15 minutes, but I'm telling you, 15 minutes, it, it's a good place to start. I, I like 15 because, you know, when you do the math, it's actually 1% of your day. If you add up all the minutes, you know, 24 hours, it's like 14, a little more than 14 minutes is 1% of your day. Some of you are like doing it on your phone right now. Don't, just trust me, okay? It's a sermon. I'm telling the truth. <laughs> start with 1% of your day in Scripture, 1%. And, like, and, and if you're one of those 1%, you're, okay, 2%. Okay, go ahead. Eat your heart out. Half an hour, 4% an hour. Let's start reading the Word. Like Spainer said, the more at home the Word of God is among us, the more we shall bring about faith and its fruits. If you're struggling with your faith and to live out your faith, if you're struggling to see any fruits of the Spirit in your life, maybe it's an absence of the Word of God. Maybe. Uh, It could be other things, but as your pastor, I'm just saying maybe one of the big reasons could be an absence of God's Word in your life. So read it. Get a plan. If you read the Bible for 15 minutes a day every day, 365 days, it takes you, I think, three years to read it from Genesis to Revelation. If you're an average speed reader, so read it. Every three years, just go through it over and over. Or some of you are more aggressive. You can read it once a year. (laughs) One time I tried this program called B90X, all right? Not P90X, (laughs) B90X. You know what this was? This was a Bible reading plan. Read the Bible in 90 days. Woo, it was hard. I felt like I was, I was just like, you know, skimming at one point. I was just like, I got to get, you know, it was a lot. But hey, you know, like, I, you know, I just want to see if it could be done and it can be done. It could actually be done probably B90-60 or B90-30 if you're, you know, I, there are people who spend a lot of time in the Word. I'm just saying 1%, 15 minutes, all right? I'm not going to hit you over the head with my Bible if you haven't been reading five minutes or ten, but I'm going to say 15 minutes is a good place for us to aim. And I'm talking about like in the Word, in the Word, okay? Read it, read it, read it. Get it in you. The second thing is this. Again, no magic, no mystery. Study it. If you don't have a study Bible yet and you've been coming to church for more than a year, shame on you. Go get a study Bible. Go download one. There are study Bibles online. Get a study Bible that'll help you to dig a little deeper into the text, to understand things like context, to understand things like who is Timothy and who is his mom and his grandma and and where do they come from and how do we know that they were Christian and his dad wasn't? 
Where is Iconium and Lystra, these places where Paul had traveled? How did Eugene know that he traveled 5,000 miles? Well, they have maps and study Bibles, and they mark out the different cities that he went to, and they take all of his writings and extra-biblical literature as well, and they put it together, and they put it in these study Bibles to give us a more fuller sort of um, uh, bucket or, 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 or bo- toolbox of resources or tools to study Scripture and to understand it better. So when you're reading through Numbers and you're like, I I don't know what this is about, I don't know what's going on here, forget Numbers, no. Paul says it's all God-inspired. So don't forget Numbers. No, get a study Bible or a commentary, and if you don't know which one to pick, ask me or anybody else on staff, and we will point you in the right direction. We'll say, use this book or this commentary or this study Bible to help you see the redemptive gospel message in the book of Numbers. For the last two months, I've been doing a Bible study with people here at Cornerstone through the book of Judges. And we've been doing just that every single week. What's going on here? This guy is a womanizer. He's got no patience. He's a murderer. He's a drunkard. He's got long braids. What does this have to do with Jesus? And we have been studying deep. We've been reading commentary. We've been doing study to find the gospel according to Judges each and every week. It's hard to do if you don't go to seminary or Bible college. It's hard to do if you don't know Greek and Hebrew and Latin. And it's hard to do if you don't have these tools, but you can do it. Anyone can do this. I mean, let's not let Gutenberg's work be in vain. He wanted everybody to have a copy of the Bible so that we could all read it and study it for ourselves. So you're probably thinking, oh, Eugene, you're tricking us. You said 15 minutes reading, but now that's like another like half hour study. Yeah, well... Yeah, that's, I am tricking you. I'm not. 45 minutes. I don't don't know. Five minutes. Start with the 15 and then study on top of that. Third, halfway there. The third thing I want you to do is this. I want you to begin the practice and discipline of memorizing God's word. Some of you memorize birthdays, anniversaries, you know, so-and-so's favorite color. You know, um, you know, stats of your favorite athletes and ballplayers. You, you know the stock market quote for the last 30 days. I mean, you, you guys memorize so much, and you're fed so much information. I mean, you just turn on your phone in the morning. There's so much information coming and going, coming and going. And you're memorizing and you're cramming for exams and to pass tests and certifications and boards and to go into meetings and to, you know, to tell people, show people how much you know. You're memorizing all the time. We need to consider a more extensive use of Bible memorization in our lives as well. And uh, I'll say this. If you don't know where to start, again, I'm going to try to be very practical here because I want this to be central. I don't want this to be unattainable or unreachable. But if you don't know where to start, well, what do I memorize? Do I start Genesis 1-1 and just, no, no, don't, you can do that. But if you don't have one already, find your favorite verse in the Bible, your life verse, one that really speaks to you. Maybe the one that brought you to faith or the one that, you know, you always think about. Start there and memorize that and write that word, that word, that verse in your heart. Live by it. And if you already have one or two or three, find another. Find more. I don't think it's a stretch for anyone in this room, and forgive me if I don't know you and you, and you might have a challenge in doing this, I don't think it's a stretch for anyone in this room to memorize a hundred Bible verses. A hundred. It is not a stretch. We can do this. It takes discipline. It takes time. It takes making Scripture central to your life. Instead of spending two hours reading stats about something that means nothing, 
why don't you spend 45 minutes repeating a verse over and over in your mind and your heart to make it yours. So even when your Wi-Fi connection and your 3G network goes down and you didn't have a Bible because you downloaded it, you still have it here. Where did Paul find the inspiration to refer to the prophets and Moses when he was in this jail? He didn't have the Bible because it wasn't printed at that time. But where did it come from? It came from his heart. Let's practice the discipline of memorization, scripture memorization. And the last one is this. Read it, study it, memorize it, and to make scripture central to our lives, the last one is to meditate. And maybe you're doing it already. Again, no newsflash, no mystery. I've never heard this before. Oh my gosh, meditate. No, meditate. Spend time in it, thinking about it. I like to use, because some people are like, when they think meditation, they think of like, you know, Eastern philosophy or just, you know, I don't know, like, you know, New Age or like what, what you know, like, like candles or, you know, in the dark or, you know, in the morning. At night. Well, let me just put it this way. There's an easy way to understand what it means to meditate. I exchange the word meditate with another word that I like to use called marinate, right? You've, some of you heard me use this before. Marinate. Yeah, you, got, you, you heard me right. Marinate. I, one, of, one of my favorite things I love to do is I love to grill. Uh, if you know me well, you know that. And I love to cook meat because what else do you cook on the grill, right? And uh, when you put meat on the grill, you can put it straight up. There are certain cuts of meat that actually are fabulous, untouched, naked. But there are other cuts of meat that really benefit from marinade. And what you do is you create this marinade out of, I like to use soy sauce, sugar, I like to use garlic, you know, ginger, you know, all kinds of things, you know, rice wine. And you mix it together, you create this marinade and you soak or you marinate the meat in this marinade. And what happens, in case you didn't know, is that as this meat sits in this marinade, it begins to absorb the flavor of the marinade. So that when you cook the meat and you taste the meat, it tastes like the marinade in which it was absorbing, and the marinade in which it was marinating in. Meditation is like marination, okay? It's sitting in the Word of God and allowing God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be absorbed to your heart, to your mind, to your body. So that, we're not going to cook you, but let's say somebody wrongs you. What comes out? Revenge? No, forgiveness. Somebody rushes you and gets on your nerve. What comes out? Impatience and frustration? No. If you've been meditating or marinating in the word of God, peace, patience, gentleness will come out because that's what you've been absorbing. Somebody hates you, and makes it very clear that they don't like you? Do you hate them back? No. You love them in return. Why? How? Because God's word is profitable. Another word is useful or effective to make us more like Christ. When you marinate in scripture, and if you haven't been marinating for a while, if you haven't marinated in a while, Maybe that's the reason why you have such a short fuse or you carry so much resentment over what somebody's done to you or you're stressed out 
about the worries of this life. You're stressed out, and there is no reprieve. Maybe you feel lost with no sense of direction. Maybe we could consider returning to a more extensive use of the Word of God. There are no secrets, there are no shortcuts. We must be born again. Scripture must be central. We must be born again. Scripture must be central. That's all I'm going to say. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Your word I have hid in my heart so that I will not sin against thee. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. If you want direction, go to the word. If you want to know what's right and wrong, go to the word. If you want a life worth living, go to the word. Away from worthless things, preserved according to the word. A light into my path. I need direction. I need wisdom in decision making. What's right? What's wrong? Thy word I have hid in my heart so that I will not sin against thee, that I will choose the right and not the wrong. This is the way we must live. This is the way we should live. This is the only way we can live to give glory to God, not only together, but out, out into the world. Otherwise, we're just another group of people that have our own little set of teachings that we abide by, but every other day of the week or every other time of the day, we're just like everyone else, listening to all the trendy voices of the day, following all the latest trends, listening to all the latest fads, all the latest teachings, the discoveries. We're just like everyone else, tossed to and fro. But if we return to a more extensive use of the scripture to make it central in our lives, something will be different. Something will be different. And let's not take for granted this thing, right? our Bibles. I, I brought my bound Bible today. I was meant to pull it out for visual effect. I left it in my bag back there. But just, it's in this hand right now. Let's take this thing a little bit more seriously. Because a lot of people went to great lengths over a long period of time so that we could love God more, so that we could know God more, so we could serve God more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for Peter and John and James. Thank you for Isaiah. We thank you for King Solomon, King David, Moses. God, we thank you for Joshua. And on and on and on, God. Even the, the authors whose names we don't know. Lord, we thank you that just like you are fully divine and fully human in your son Jesus Christ, that your word also is fully divine and yet fully given to us through human hands. And it is you, Lord God, your spirit, your truth that inspired, motivated, and transmitted this perfect, all-sufficient, all-powerful message for us to live our lives upon, to put our faith upon, 
Lord, we are not called to blind faith. We're called to biblical faith. And so, Lord, help us to return to a more extensive use of your word. And Lord, give us the motivation to read it and to study it so that we're not lost to our own misunderstanding or misinterpretation, but Lord, that we can accurately read it and understand it and apply it well. Lord, help us to receive the good news of the word of God as it rebukes us and reproofs us and corrects us, Lord, that we might have a a more right relationship with you. And Lord, as we read it, may it equip us with the sword of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of readiness, the belt of faith, Lord, so that we may go out into this world as your followers, as your disciples, as your sons and daughters to do every good work, whether it's to preach or witness, serve the poor, create a new invention that will help many, many other people, create the cure for a disease, teach in a college, an elementary school, in a preschool or a seminary, Lord, any good work and every good work, Lord, may we do it by being equipped through your word, your power, and your truth. And so, Father, we repent and we come back to your word. And Lord, Spirit, would you help us to grow in it, to love it, to treasure it, and to prize it more than anything else so that everything else is just stale compared to it. May we love it that much, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.